I feel very privileged to be here. My first time to be uh, in your chapel, though I've known Bob for some years and look forward to the opportunity of being with you. I want to share with you today a little bit about value systems, choices that you will make in your life, and the danger of a dichotomized heart. I found in my experience uh, in numerous countries around the world that there's a great deal of confusion in people of our age. People somewhere between your age and my age. That's not a great gap. I'd like to share with you an experience I had recently that illustrates the problems that young adults have in uh, getting their act together, understanding their value systems, and making the proper choices. Recently, I was talking with a young man who told me he was having a very, very difficult time. He had uh, been married for a short period of time and had come to the conclusion that even in that few months, his wife was seeing another man. He told me that uh, he got very furious with this thought and decided to come home early one afternoon from work. So instead of coming home at the customary 4.30 or 5 o'clock, he came home at 3. He told me that as he drove up in front of his apartment, he had the sense that somebody was there. He was furious. He burst in the front door of the apartment and accused his wife. Where is he? Where is who, she said. Whoever it is you've been seeing. He said, there's no one here. But he was furious and he told me that he went through the living room looking everywhere. Ridiculous places. Under the couch, in the closet. And she followed him around saying, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. I'm not seeing anyone. He said, what are these two drinks here? One with lipstick, one without. Oh, I forgot. I took off my lipstick and made another drink. And that's how that happened. He didn't believe her. He ran into the bedroom. Under the bed, in the closet, behind the dresser, looking for this guy. And she was following him the whole time. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? There's no one here. That is, he came out of the, the bedroom. He could see through the, through the hallway into the kitchen. And through the kitchen window, he saw a man running down the sidewalk toward the street. He concluded in his mind this was the man his wife was seeing, and he was so furious, he ran into the kitchen, grabbed the refrigerator, threw it out the window, and squashed this guy on the sidewalk. His wife came running into the kitchen. She said, honey, what have you done? You just killed our next-door neighbor. He told me he was so distraught and upset he went back in the bedroom, he pulled out a revolver and blew his brains out. 
And he said, John, I woke up in this large, dark room. There were these stairs going up. There were these stairs going down. And I was so confused and frustrated and angry. And I didn't know what to do. I just looked at the stairs going up and the stairs going down. And finally, I noticed off in the corner, there was another person. And he looked in worse shape than I did, so I decided to comfort him, and I walked over to him, and I said, Friend, can you tell me where are we? What is this place, and what are these stairs going up and these stairs going down? And the fellow said to him, Look, I really don't know. I was late for work. I was running out to my car, and this refrigerator came through. <laughs> the young man told me he put his arm around his friend and said, I'm so sorry. I thought you were stepping out with my wife. I'm the one who threw the refrigerator and squashed you on the sidewalk. I went into, went into my bedroom and blew my brains out. And they comforted each other and started studying the stairs going up and the stairs going down. And in their confusion and distraught, they noticed far in another corner another man who looked even worse than all of them. So they decided to ask this fellow and they walked over to him and said, Look, can you tell us what is this place? What are these stairs going up and these stairs going down? What should we do? And the guy was very, very angry, and he looked at him and said, Don't ask me. I know nothing about this place. I was sitting in this refrigerator minding my own business. Okay, so it wasn't a true story. <laughs> but it still illustrates. If you're sitting next to a freshman, explain to them later, all right? <laughs> she finally got it. Young adults are confused. It's difficult to know how to make the correct choices in life. It's difficult to know and to understand our own value systems. And one of the reasons for this is the attempts of the enemy to get us to dichotomize our lives. If you have your Bible, and I expect you should, look in Luke chapter 14, and we'll look at several examples that illustrate the difficulties in making choices and the problems that arise when we use worldly criteria and attempt to get to a godly result. In Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 16, Jesus was telling his disciples a parable of some import. And you all know the story. It was the story of the man who decided to throw a party, not unlike the Super Bowl party this weekend. And uh, starting in verse eight, 18, all was ready, and men began to make excuses. And they all, with one 
consent, began to make excuse. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray, please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to test them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife. Obviously, I cannot come. Luke chapter 9. Starting with verse 57. And it came to pass as they walked along the way, a certain man said to him, to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, fine, but note that the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But that person said, Lord, please allow me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go home and bid my family farewell. And Jesus said, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the new church was just beginning to blossom. And there were some needs. Barnabas sold his property, took the proceeds, gave it to the church, the fellowship, the body. And uh, another couple thought that he got uh, a great deal of praise for this good deed and decided to do in a similar way. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, chapter 5, verse 2, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being a party to this, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? And you know the story. Ananias and Sapphira both paid with their lives. We could look in Hebrews chapter 11 for many other good examples of people who had to make choices, and Hebrews chapter 11 used biblical criteria to make eternal choices and got the proper results. What choices were made by these people here to attend the banquet, to follow Jesus, to invest in the ministry, and what criteria did they use? What criteria did the man use in making a choice not to go to the banquet because he had five new yoke of oxen? What do you think went into his decision-making process? What was the criteria that went into the decision of the man not to attend the banquet because he had bought a new piece of land and need to go look at it? 
we see in these examples that the choices that people ultimately make are a function of their value systems, and especially the criteria that they use for making decisions. Let me give you an everyday example. Let's talk about career choices. What we're talking about here is not a decision about what job I will have, but it's a simple decision concerning how I will provide for the needs of myself and my family. What alternatives does a person see? Doctor, teacher, lawyer, businessman, musician. What kinds of criteria do most of us use in making choices either between positions within a particular profession or between professions? Does your list include how much does it pay? How difficult, painful, or dangerous is it? What kind of security does it provide for myself and my family? How prestigious is it? Is it a good location? How about pension, vacation, hours, medical benefits? Does it use my talents and aptitudes? Does it give me an opportunity to move up for promotion? Maybe at the end, does it contribute to society in some way? So we lie to ourselves. We use those kind of criteria, which are worldly criteria, and then we deceive ourselves. Well, the reason I'm pursuing a master's degree or a doctorate is so that I can serve God better. Nonsense. If we keep on making choices on the basis of worldly criteria, we will find ourselves enslaved. Now, where do these criteria come from? Well, sometimes they come from our parents. Think about it. What do parents ask their children to consider when they're selecting a university or a college? What criteria get used? Sometimes they can come from our pastors. It would be useful someday to make a study and find out how many pastors ever moved down. It's an amazing thing that God always calls people to larger churches higher pay. I only know a handful of people who would take a 120% cut in their income because God was calling them in one direction or another. Considering a marriage partner, what criteria do we use? Often worldly criteria. What I want you to see is that if you have a value system that accepts the world's criteria as the basis for making your daily decisions, there's not one chance that you can ever arrive at the full and abundant life that Jesus has in mind for you. Not 
one. You cannot use a world-designed copyright and a copyrighted and printed roadmap and get to heavenly destinations. They cut all those destinations off the map. They don't exist. It's a sad thing. But the vast majority of the Christians that I know know in their heart of hearts that they are where they are, that they are what they are, that they are doing what they are doing, and with whom they are doing it, because in the past they used the world's criteria to try to make their choices. And it's so painful to see this in ourselves that we become the greatest inventors of all time. We create massive deceptions to convince ourselves. We fabricate the most ridiculous illusions. And then we try to convince others that it's all okay. And in fact, we're usually successful in both deceiving ourselves and in deceiving others because almost everyone else is playing the same tragic game and we think we're getting away with it. Peter has a vivid description for this in 2 Peter chapter 2. These are wells without water, clouds, uh, verse 17, clouds that are carried with the tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For that when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those who are clean. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same, unto the same he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through a knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it really would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it's happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his own vomit and the sow that was washed wallowing in the mire. Entangled again. How does this happen? We sense that something is wrong. We can feel that we're walking on a false path. And yet we come, become entangled. Just as Jesus said in his story of the parable of the soils. Where he said, some take root, but then are entangled by the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for material things. And it comes in and chokes the word so that it's not fruitful. What happens to us? The deceitfulness of a dichotomized heart. Once in the Gospels, Jesus was accused of working for Satan. That was because he would not fit into the value system of the Pharisees. Anyway, 
Jesus commented to his accusers, that doesn't make any sense. Satan would not divide himself against himself in order to accomplish his evil purposes. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Military commanders have used that strategy ever since. And Satan has always used that strategy on you and I. The danger of a dichotomized heart is in the subtle efforts of the world system to get us to divide up our lives, to compartmentalize. They say that where I come from, the People's Republic of China, that the Chinese are the most expert in the world at compartmentalizing. That is, the communist system teaches a person to be able to hold two diametrically opposed and mutually exclusive concepts in their minds at the same time, without any sense of contradiction or frustration. And we are encouraged by the world to divide up our lives into categories, and then to treat each of those categories separately as if they were not related to one another. So you hear things like this. Well, John, how's your married life? How's your work life? How's your spiritual life? Listen, I've been trying for a long time to get more than one life, and I keep getting told I only get one. I don't have a married life and a work life. I've only got one life. And it's a short one. But the world tries to get us to divide our Christian life from our secular life. It's kind of the idea of separation of church and state, if you will. Just the other day, I was watching television. The man who was being interviewed on a PBS program was a very, very well-known conservative evangelical Christian leader. And the interviewer was asking him some questions about his profession, which happened to be law, his politics, and his Christian life. And the man answered him very clearly, I am here to answer questions about my Christian life. Do not ask me questions about my professional life or my interest in politics. Those are three entirely separate and unrelated parts of my existence. And I thought to myself, probably so. What a tragedy that we would begin to believe that we can compartmentalize our lives and somehow still enjoy the abundant life. Why is it so important for Satan to get us to divide our lives into these categories? Because if we're going to insist on having a faith, and most of you insist on that, that's why you're here at this school, 
then the best way for Satan to defend against the results of that choice is to get you to do what the Chinese get their people to do. If you're going to have a faith, that's fine. But it must be confined to a certain place, a certain time. It must not permeate throughout your life. It's this idea which gives rise to the thought, my faith in God is a very private thing. I don't share it with other people. That's as sissy as you can get. What does the Bible say? Matthew 22:37 and other places says, You shall love the Lord your God with 40% with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Look to Matthew chapter 4. Then was Jesus led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, surprise, surprise, he was hungry. Being hungry, Satan took that natural need and said to him, You're the Son of God. You can turn this stone to bread. Do it and satisfy your need. Not that way. The end does not justify the means. Jesus would not steal, no matter how hungry he was. And he would not lie, no matter how bad the consequences of the truth. And he would not turn stone into bread in these circumstances. Satan challenges Jesus' faith. Prove your faith. Prove your God. Do something spectacular to get attention, to eliminate your doubts and the doubts of others. Throw yourself down from the temple. And the scripture says, the angels will prevent you from striking your foot on the ground. Jesus would not compromise self-generated tests of faith and proofs of God are not faith at all. They're plain. But the last of the three deceits, I believe, is the most devastating. Look at it with me. Verses 8 and 9. And again, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said to him, All of these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I want you to think of this with me. I'd like to ask you, did, did Satan say to Jesus, 
Jesus, what I want you to do in order to possess all of this world's wealth, power, fame, prestige, security, applause, simply deny your faith in God, turn your back on your foolish faith, faith and worship me instead. Read it. Verse 9. No. Satan said something much more powerful than that. He did not say, don't worship God. Rather, he said, worship me. Worship me. Whoa. This is what it's all about. Here is how we get destroyed by compartmentalizing our lives. Hold in your mind two patently contradictory and mutually exclusive values. It's all right to look at things God's way in God's arena, but look at things my way, the devil's way. I know this is what Jesus, what Satan meant when he tempted Jesus this way because of Jesus' response in verse 10. Jesus responded, it is clearly written, you shall worship only the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus would not buy into, worship me, you. Immediately after this experience in the wilderness, Jesus called his followers together and shared with them something directly related to this temptation. Jesus had gone through this temptation and been victorious, and he needed his disciples to know what this principle was. And he immediately drew them aside. And we have some of the toughest ground in the scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapter 7, there are some parts that read something like this. Don't save up money and other forms of wealth in this world. Your life is short, and these things are of absolutely no value for giving you abundant life now, and certainly they're of no value once your time on earth is gone. Such things just corrode and fall apart. They are of no lasting value. Rather, be sensible. Recognize that life is more than food and clothing. Your treasures are in heaven, where no one can steal them from you. And those kinds of treasures never decay. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And how you see things is very important. If your perceptions are right, then your whole life will be full of light. But if you see things wrongly, then your whole life will be full of darkness. And if the things which you think of as good perceptions and values are really darkness, then there is no greater darkness than that. And then Jesus said, let me make it very clear. 
Satan said to Jesus, Worship me too, and you can have it all. You can have service to God, and you can have that Mercedes. Worship me too, and Jesus says, let me make it clear, no one can serve two masters. <coughs> you cannot serve God in the world. Jesus said it is absolutely impossible. For regardless of how it may appear, you will have to hate the one and love the other, hold on to the one and despise the other. It is impossible to serve God and the world at the same time. You cannot please God with half a heart. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. But we are encouraged to dichotomize our lives, to somehow to serve God in his compartment and to serve the world and the rest. To somehow use godly criteria to make some of our decisions and then use a set of worldly criteria to make the rest. Jesus makes it very clear that this cannot work. It is pure self-deceit. You serve him or you don't. There is no such meaning as 87% pure. But I was faithful to my wife 90% of the time. Well, I followed almost all of the instructions. Double-minded, James says in chapter one master, only one, for your heart to be aflame, your whole heart. The key to combating the deceitfulness of the dichotomized heart is to keep a close watch on your criteria. I used to think that the key was to look at my objectives, my priorities, okay? But I learned that that was a trick of the devil. Those objectives and priorities are important. But what the devil got me to do was to say, these are my objectives, and then get me to use a set of worldly criteria to try to accomplish them. And he had me. Because there was no way I could hold those objectives up all I wanted to. But as long as I was using his roadmap, I was never going to get there. He doesn't care if I have godly objectives. He only cares if I achieve godly objectives. And if he can keep me from achieving them, it's fine for him if I hold them. And I was deceiving myself. Holding them firmly, but achieving them rarely. Look at your criteria, not your objectives. Ask yourself, how am I making this choice? You're getting ready to buy a car? What criteria are you using? When you list those criteria down, if they come out to look like worldly criteria, take another look. You're making your career choices? Look at what criteria you're using. That's the first thing. Second. 
Don't get into the trap of looking at the criteria that other people use, no matter how much you respect them. You have enough challenge to look at your own criteria. Forget about other people's criteria. Third, especially leaders, don't ever contribute to others compartmentalizing their lives. You in your lifetime will have all kinds of opportunities to talk with others who are looking for guidance from you. Please, please don't ever draw out your manual of worldly criteria to help them make the decision. If you don't know what the godly criteria are, just pray with them and pray for them. But don't ask them to look at things like how much does it pay and how secure is it and What are the promotion opportunities? Jesus says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be dropped into the ocean than for you to cause one of his children to stumble. Fourth, keep an eye on your purpose. And you do have a purpose if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is optimal lifetime stewardship. That's your purpose. Optimal lifetime Stewardship. I'm sure that you do not want a Mickey Mouse life. I'm sure that you do not, want, do not want to come to the end of your life and say, I was born, I went to elementary school, I went to high school, I went to college at Master's College, I graduated, I got a master's degree somewhere else, then I uh, worked for 30 years, then I played golf, then I died. But that's what most people have, a Mickey Mouse life. Do you know that most of you, as of right now, have approximately only 30,000 discretionary hours left in your life. Sit down and calculate it out sometime. Can you believe that? You probably, on an actuarial basis, have only about 30,000 discretionary hours left in your life. Use one of them right here today. Don't worry about what others think. Focus your attention on pleasing Jesus. I have some heroes. You know, most people who know Jesus love him because he was absolutely unaffected by the world. My heroes are the types like uh, Indiana Jones. And most of our heroes are that way because we recognize that they haven't dichotomized. They've made up their minds. And they pursue wholeheartedly, and they aren't influenced or deceived. <coughs> and Jesus was that way. And I have some heroes today. Two of them are with me in China. I just want to share this with you because it's an inspiration to me. One of the guys that works with me in China <clears throat> felt God's call, whatever that means, to serve him in China, and he was a very successful consulting engineer in oil and gas. He applied to several missions agencies, and they all turned him down because he didn't have enough seminary. So he went to seminary, got his degree, he applied to mission agencies, and they turned him down. 
Another reason. Silly reason. In fact, the reason was, they said, his daughter, who was 13 at the time when she was five, had a congenital ear disease, and uh, it had been gone and no trace of it for 10 years, but they thought that might keep him from being successful in China. So he went on his own. He went to the Philippines to study Chinese. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, uh, I got to know him, and he came to join us in China. Been in China for about two years, and he and his wife and his three children were having a, a really fantastic ministry. Lots of people trusting Christ through them. A real encouragement. When his wife started to have headaches, our doctor on our team said this could be a problem. Uh, I'd like you to go back to the States and have it examined. She came back to the States, and they diagnosed a massive brain tumor. I was there, the family was in China, family flew back to be with her for surgery in Houston. And she had uh, had surgery and they thought they got most of it. And she said, fine, when's the soonest I can go back to China? And within a few weeks after the surgery, the family packed back up, got on an airplane, went back to China continued to have a phenomenal ministry. Now she's bald-headed, you know. That attracted a lot of attention. She used that to serve the Lord. And about five months later, the headaches came back. And uh, he had to go back to the United States with her family. And about a month and a half after they arrived, she died. And a few weeks later, one heart, one mind, all their hearts, all their minds, all their souls, and all their strength. I have a friend who's a Cambodian. He was with me in the Philippines when his country fell. Some of you may have heard him speak sometime. He had a brand new baby, three months old, when his country fell to Paul Pop. He said, I'm going home. He said, wait a minute, that's not safe, it's not smart. You can't make any money. You're going to die. What we call closed doors. By the way, Jesus had a closed door too in Jerusalem. And all of his friends pointed out to him that it was a closed door. He said, I'm going back anyway. I don't believe in closed doors. And he went back to Cambodia. And for three years, he led people to Christ while he was being chased across the country. And he ran right through the killing fields. And all around him, millions were being butchered. But thousands were coming to Jesus. Ran into that guy recently. That was ten years ago. I ran into him recently. He managed to escape after several years in, in uh, Cambodia. And uh, he's serving the Lord now, again, in Cambodia and Vietnam. The man I ran into recently told him he's the most dynamic evangelist that Indochina has ever seen. Don't let Satan convince you to compartmentalize your life. Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or despise the other. Let's pray.